the children come to me for to them belong the kingdom of God. And uh, the Bible says that out of the mouths of babes and infants, God has ordained his praise. And so it's always really a treat to see our children gathered in front, uh, worshiping the Lord and studying his word, because uh, they're the chosen ones. They're the ones who have been picked by God from long ago uh, to carry uh, his word and his life. Uh, let's pray together. We've been given this devotional, um, and so we're going we're gonna to recite this prayer aloud. It should come up on the screen. Merciful God, as we enter Holy Week and gather for worship, turn our hearts again to Jerusalem and to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Stir up within us the gift of faith that we may not only praise him with our lips, but may follow him in the way of the cross. Amen. Today's sermon is about Jesus as king. Jesus is the king, and today on Palm Sunday, the king enters his city. If you would open to Matthew chapter 21, hear these words from God. We'll start in verse 1 and go through verse 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. This year we joined uh, together as a church with the church at large to practice Lent. Uh, and as we mentioned, Caitlin put together this incredible devotional that has helped many of us uh, as a guide through this season. It's full of prayers and practices and stories and wisdom. And if you look closely at it, you'll notice that she didn't put her name anywhere on it. Uh, so uh, find her and give her a good thanks. But one of the practices that's encouraged in here that we've talked about is imaginative prayer, an imaginative reading of the scripture, something Pastor Stephen has helped, us lead, uh, has helped lead us through in the past from the pulpit. In short, imaginative prayer is um, using your imagination to enter the world of the Bible or to enter the world of your prayer or even the world of somebody who you're praying for. It's taking a deep breath and closing your eyes 
and breathing that breath out into the air of first century Jerusalem as if you're one of the bystanders in this story. Or if you're praying for another, it's placing yourself in their shoes, in their mind, in their experiences. Last time I preached, I focused on imagination, especially on how our imagination of what it could possibly mean to belong to Jesus Christ. Uh, my hope is that that imagination would be expanded and is still that. But practicing imagination gives us uh, the ability to see things anew. It helps us to ask different questions. So for a sort of trite example, I have a morning routine. I know many of you do as well. And it consists of a few very familiar questions to me. For example, what time is it when I wake up? Do we have any cereal left? Is another one. Uh, before I step out the door, did I remember to brush my teeth? Uh, why can I never find socks? These are my go-to questions, etc., etc. And every day I wake up to these questions. But if I were to imagine myself, say as my wife, for just a moment, it becomes easy to see a whole new set of questions that I never ask. For example, where are the kids? Uh, you see, she's far more responsible than I am. Uh, but that's just one step removed. We have very similar lives. What if instead, say, I used my imagination to put myself in the morning shoes of the woman who maybe you know is often seen standing outside of Wendy's on Riley Street across from the Meyer gas station holding her sign? What questions are normal to her in the morning? Maybe, where will I sleep? Will I eat today? Will this warm weather stay, or am I going to have to sleep in the cold again? Will anyone pay any attention to me today? Am I worth anything? Imagination helps us pray in that moment because we, we realize that our lives are not all that's happening in the world, not all that has happened in the past. So it helps us pray. It helps us read the Bible. It can help us to see things we often overlook. It can help us to ask questions we wouldn't normally consider. It can hopefully lead us toward love and away from self-centeredness. And so not long ago, Stephen preached on the transfiguration and used imagination. He asked you to imagine yourselves as the disciples witnessing this event. A magnificent thing happens during the transfiguration. Jesus, on the top of the mountain, glows. It's not much in the way of plot. It's not much in the way of teaching. But we don't, we don't gain a lesson to be applied so much as a vision of Jesus that we didn't see before to be carried and through listening, prayer, and an imagination guided the Holy Spirit who is with us today, we can get a greater vision of Jesus Christ shining in his glory and power. And I say all of this because today's text from Matthew is quite similar and it requires us to use our imaginations, I believe. We have the benefit of actual palm branches in front of us. But remember how this sermon, this passage, is to see Jesus as king. In these verses, Matthew offers us little in the way of teaching or lessons, and not that much in the way of plot. A little bit happens. There's plenty going on. But let's try to actually take ourselves there. As members of this crowd, as disciples walking alongside Jesus up the road to Jerusalem, maybe even looking on at the crowd through Jesus' eyes, we could imagine. We have palm branches. We have coats. What are we doing? Let's read the gospel again from Matthew, and this time with our imaginations engaged. Let's start in chapter 20. We're going to start a little earlier than before. Chapter 20, verse 17. 
This is going to be the whole story of Jerusalem, the approach to it. And put yourself there. What new observation arise? What new questions are asked? Hear these words. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." And as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. And they asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. I imagine myself in the crowd, and I see the crowds shoulder to shoulder, bustling, and then some of them start taking their clothes off, and they, they lay them on the road. It's very odd. And others scatter away, and they start climbing trees and yelling down to their friends to do the same. 
And they pull out knives and they cut off branches and they lay them on the road too. And then chanting starts. It's a mob. And the mob is moving and shouting. And somewhere in the midst of them is a very ordinary man riding a very ordinary donkey. And three very significant questions come to mind. One, the Bible asks for us, who is this man? The second is this, what is he doing here? And the third is this, what is going to happen to this city? And what does it have to do with me? Think we can answer these questions? I think we can answer some of them. So how about the first one? Who is this man? Remember what the sermon is about? Do you know right here? This is Jesus, the king. That's right. So this Jesus, the king, the crowds in our story seem to have an inkling that this is the case, that he is the king. They wouldn't call him the son of David if they didn't have some perception that this man was the king. What about the second question? What is he doing here coming to Jerusalem? Well, this is the king, so identified to us, according to the prophet Zechariah, by his donkey coming into Zion, the city of the king. And you should know that Jesus, in the whole gospel of Matthew, has not yet gone to Jerusalem. So here he is, identified as king, identifying himself as much, the mob identifying him as king, and coming to the city for the first time that has not been his but belongs to him. This is the return of the king, which is for Stephen, who's not here. This is Jesus' ascent to the throne. This is his conquest. So what does that mean for the city? Jesus, the king, coming in conquest. And what does it mean for me, a citizen in the city? I have never been in personal attendance of a return of a king or a coronation or any ascent to a throne or conquest of a city, but I do understand that when rulers return to authority, there are two things that inevitably happen. Great rejoicing on the one hand and gnashing of teeth on the other hand, right? While a king is gone, others inevitably and necessarily come into power, and the return of any given king to a city that belongs to that king means a loss of that power from those who had been tenants for a time. Humans don't like losing power. I know I don't like losing power that I've had. I imagine the same is true for most of you. We like keeping it. So for many, the temporary ruling class and those who had favor with him, the return of the king is not a welcome sight. But for many others, those who have favor with the true king, this is a time of great rejoicing. The return means a new start. It means favor with the king, which is wealth, security. It might mean power. It might mean new opportunity. It might mean new prestige. I haven't been close to the crowning of a king, but these principles are true in all sorts of areas of our lives that are more familiar. People come and go from positions of power. Maybe you have recently, maybe you have in the past. Wealth, popularity, fame. And there's always a mixture of weeping and rejoicing when they come and when they go. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's celebrity. Sometimes it's personal to us. Maybe we lose a job and somebody else is promoted in our place. Maybe we get a promotion and somebody else loses their job or gets demoted. But far more often, it's not as personal. Far more often, we aren't the ones being enthroned or promoted or being celebrated. But nevertheless, we reap the benefit or the fall from others having these same experiences. Our lives get inseparably attached to others. 
And as such, we share in their success and their demise. And there are scales that measure the amount in which we share in another's success and demise. The first is how close we are to that person. The second is how powerful that person is. If you're a parent and your child achieves something great, you celebrate greatly with them. They are as close to you as you are to yourself, and all their successes are yours too. Likewise, when your child falls and gets hurt, you hurt deeply with them. Proximity binds us to the fall and rise of another. And so does power, influence, fame. This is true of small powers, like we mentioned, celebrities, athletes, authors, businessmen, and the like. We attach ourselves to them, and when Kobe Bryant retires, a part of us grieves, right? When Isaiah Thomas retires, sorry, a part of us grieves. And now it seems especially true of politicians who have great power. Policy makers have an extreme amount of influence, and it seems now as much as ever, we are eager to bind ourselves to these leaders who have influence, and with that binding, it feels more than ever that their successes are our successes and that their failures are our failures. Whenever there's a transfer of power, there is celebration and there is sadness, and we are directly affected by those transfers based on the power of the leader and how close we are to that particular leader. When we are close and they are powerful, we reap their benefits. When we are close and they are powerful, we reap their falls. So back to our premise, Jesus is king. Jesus is entering his city to ascend to his throne. So here are our questions for us today. How powerful is Jesus? How close are we to Jesus? How powerful is Jesus? Very powerful is the right answer. The third question is, what is going to happen to the city? And the other one that remains, what does this mean for me? How powerful is Jesus? He is mighty, mighty to save, right? He makes the blind see. He makes the lame walk. He makes the dead come back to life. He is as strong as they come. But let's go back to the story to see how some of those other questions play out because I think they're the exact questions that the characters in the story are asking themselves that they had in mind. Hear these words again. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of them. Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You see, not only did the disciples know what was going on, but even their mother did, and they want to be as close to him as possible when he takes the throne. Why? Because when he takes the throne, they take the throne with him. His throne will be their throne, and they want it. Oh, what about the city? What about the city? Did any of you notice what city they were in when the disciples and their mother asked this question we just read? Look in verse 29 of chapter 20. See the city? As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, Jericho, we all know what happened in Jericho, right? After 40 years in the desert, the Israelites were finally led across the Jordan into the land that was promised to them, and a great fortress stood in their way. 
But God delivered that city, Jericho, into their hands. They walked around it seven times, blew their trumpets, and the walls collapsed, and the city was conquered. Everything in it killed and destroyed, and the Israelites had their day. Jerusalem, the city promised to the people, the city that Jesus is now entering, has been corrupted by the Romans, was being led by a false king who bought the throne named Herod, and it was rich in wickedness, ripe for judgment. For 40 years, the Israelites wandered in the desert. Well, for the last 400 years, they had been exiles in their own land and without a prophet. But now the prophet Jesus had come. And I assure you that as they set their minds on Jerusalem, Jesus said they were going. And as they crossed through Jericho, they had high expectations. This city will be ours. This guy can calm storms with his words. This guy can raise the dead. Nothing can stand in our way. And these walls will fall before us and will be rebuilt around us. After all, Jesus said it himself, I'm able to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And he's now calling himself the king. We share in the victory of our leaders. And Jesus is ascending to his throne. The city will be overtaken. And the disciples, those closest to him, will rule with him. And the disciples are right. Jesus is the king. And he is coming to take his throne. And they will share in his cup at his banquet table. But they are so, so blind. Jesus tries to tell them. He makes it as clear as he could. Right as they set out to Jerusalem, he says as plain as day that he will be killed and crucified. But they're so blinded by their own imaginations of glory that they have no ears to hear him. After their request, he says plainly to the two of them and all those who would listen, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But they were blind. They could not hear him. Their imaginations of glory were too strong. And if that was an indication enough of their blindness, how many blind men does Jesus heal on the rest of their journey through Jericho and towards Jerusalem? Two more, just like there were blind disciples. Just as Audrey preached so wonderfully on in John 9, a couple weeks ago, for judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. When will the disciples see what Jesus is about, what he's going to be doing? When will we see as well? How many disciples does Jesus send to collect his donkey and his colt? Two. And I like to imagine it was the same sons of Zebedee and he said, go fetch me a donkey. And I imagined that they heard, go get my stallion. And are we not these two disciples and their mother? When Jesus sends us out, what are we imagining that we will find? What we want, what all of us want, is to be a part of the ruling class, the people who are in power, at least in comfort, or at least in favor with those. It's almost unanimously what we want. Not all of us want fame. Not all of us want wealth. Not all of us want responsibility, at least not all to ourselves. But every human finds great comfort in at least association with those who are near the top. And we see this man, Jesus, and he is the coming king. And we think, this man, Jesus, 
this guy is the new king. And if we can get close to him, if we can get in early to the game, if maybe we can even befriend him, maybe he'll remember us. Maybe we can become his disciples. And then when he ascends to the throne, we can sit at his right, at his left. We can reap our reward. And what a lovely hope that is. And what a true thing it is as well, that you will share with Jesus in his reward. It is true. And you will share with Jesus in his suffering. Because Jesus didn't come to knock down the walls of Jericho again. Jesus didn't come to destroy Jerusalem. That would happen inevitably, but he didn't need to do it himself. The temple he was talking about was his body. And the kingdom he was talking about was not of this world. And the throne he was ascending does not look like any other. Make no mistake, Jesus is the king and he does ascend his throne, fulfilling all the words the prophets have spoken about him. But the king in the prophecy is gentle. If you look at the prophecy from Zechariah that's quoted in this chapter, you see that this, come, this king comes to take away the chariots from Ephraim, which is the northern kingdom of Israel, to take away the chariots, not to ride them in. He comes and the war horses from Jerusalem, he will take away, to take away the war horses and to break the battle bow. Make no mistake, Jesus is king, but his war horse is a donkey fit for little more than a farm. And it wasn't even his own donkey. He had to borrow it from someone else who was kind to him. Make no mistake, Jesus is king, but his chariot isn't made of gold. He has no chariot. He sits on cloaks that were given to him. Again, not even a saddle. Yes, there's no mistake that Jesus is the king. It was planned this way before the foundation of the world that it would be so. Abraham saw it and believed it. Moses expected it. The prophets, we are told, longed to see it, but only ever heard. And now here is this king in flesh on earth. And he is here and he is entering his city. And it is imminent that he will take his throne and rule with justice. Jesus is the king, but his horse is just a donkey, and his throne is a cross. And we proclaim, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Praise be to the one who has come to save us by the cross that we ought to have borne for ourselves. Jesus doesn't conquer the way that we do in our normal living world. We prefer to conquer through exhibitions of power, strength, wit, violence, strategy, you name it. Jesus conquers by riding a humble donkey through his own death, knowing full well what is coming before him. And I assure you, this is the greatest news of all time. And the second best news is that he calls us to be just like him in his conquering. You, me, we get to share in his suffering, taking up the cross just like he did, and in doing so, receiving the reward just as he does. Isaiah 50 says this about the Christ and the word that sustains the weary, the word that gives life into a world that teaches death and violence. The sovereign Lord has opened my eyes, Isaiah says, has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me. 
my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. That is the word of life. Jesus breaks the cycle of pain, the cycle of death, the cycle of revenge, the cycle of hate, the cycle of ruler, conquering ruler, conquering ruler, conquering ruler, the same old story. He defeats death altogether, satisfies all vengeance, and establishes for himself a throne that will never end. And if we share in it, if we share in his cross, then we're free from that cycle too. We too shall no longer die. Jesus says, as we heard just last week, I am the resurrection and the life, and those who are in me will never die, though they may sleep for a time. So what of the city? The city of Jerusalem itself will be destroyed eventually, just like every other city built by man. But the city that counts, the temple that counts, is the body of Christ, which is built up by God and will never be destroyed. And you too, though your earthly body may fade away, will be given a glorified body that will never die. So what for us? Jesus is king, that's what for us. And Jesus is the king in the way that he chooses to be king, in the way that God ordained for him to be king. And he takes the throne in mercy and in justice and in truth on a cross. And what of us, then, is our call? I think the Apostle Paul says it best. And with this we'll end. From Philippians chapter 2, you therefore, Jesus our King, have the same mindset as that Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let us pray. Holy Father, you sent your son, because we were lost, we were sheep without a shepherd. You didn't send him to beat us into submission. You didn't send him to conquer our cities and rule with an iron fist and a sword. But Lord, you sent him to save us and to give us life and to take upon our grief and our sorrow and our suffering. And we rejoice in you. We rejoice in this good news. As we go, would we be filled with your Holy Spirit to live the same, to carry our cross, to love deeply, to put others' needs before our own. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to obey. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.